Praise the Lord. God is so good. This sermon is titled, Biblical Roles Defined, Part 1. It is sort of a mini-series within a series. As you know, we're going through doctrine and life in the church. As we get to this section over the next three weeks, I'll be preaching one in part one, parts one and two, and Henry will be teaching and preaching on part three. But this passage of scripture that we are going to dive in today, into today has caused many pastors much heartache, much pain, and some have even lost their position as pastor. So if you will, please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning at verse 8, beginning at verse 8, page 991 in your pew Bibles. 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. Looking at this portion of scripture, the polemicist, playwright, and critic George Bernard Shaw called the Apostle Paul the eternal enemy of women. The eternal enemy of women. And John Chrysostom, the golden mouth preacher and Bishop of Constantinople, who people at that time regarded him as one of the greatest preachers ever. Once the Empress Eudoxia heard him speaking about women from this text, she banned him from the land and he later died in exile. Hopefully, the kind and gentle loving members of Woodside would treat me much better once I'm done. One question we need to ask ourselves is, is the Bible still relevant for today? Is the Bible uh, uh, still relevant for the church? If the answer is no, then we have bigger problems than women's dress and uh, women's position within the church. However, if the answer is, 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 yes, the Bible is relevant for today, then we need to approach it with humility and receive what it is saying to the pillar, to the, to the buttress of truth, the church. We need to hear what God is saying to his people. We have to take heed to what it says, recognizing that the word of God critiques every culture. No one is exempt. And as with Every culture, the scriptures shock, offend, and anger us. And here's the thing, the scriptures that shock, anger, and offend us, most of the time it's the exact scripture that the culture needs, that we personally need. As we all know, we have come from a life with uh, many vices and, 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 and many ungodly habits that we picked up whether by nurture or by nature, there were things we were doing that when the Lord of, 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 of hosts opened our eyes to the truth and invaded the darkness of our hearts, we had to drop those bad habits and sinful ways like shackles to the ground. It doesn't mean you won't struggle. It doesn't mean your mind won't remember those things you used to do. As I explained to uh, people who come out of the world and into the church, into the body, the universal body, that 
Don't get discouraged when you run back to those old sin in your early years especially. But think of it as, 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 as if you just came out of the rain. It takes time to dry off. It takes time to stop being wet, so to speak. It takes time to have your mind renewed to the things of God. And so we who have been walking with Christ for a while, we relay this to them so they don't feel like they're the stranger. So uh, you remember how it was. They're not thinking, am I really saved? Because I keep going back to this thing I used to do. We walk with humility and love. And we explain to them, you keep yourself around people who love God. You find an older person who can bring you along and help you to take the words from Scripture and apply them to your life, and you pray with them. Amen? Amen. Amen. Praise God for that. In our targeted text today, verses 8 to 15, we'll see how the scriptures were speaking to some members of the church at Ephesus, but yet speaks to us in our day. And these people believe that they could dress any old way they wanted, they could pray before God no matter the anger in their hearts. It's just how I look to people. How do uh, the church members receive me? How do my neighbors perceive me? But inside, something was wrong. And then we'll see how possibly some of those very same church members that the scriptures were speaking to also wanted positions of authority that were not, that was not ordained by God. My two points for today's sermon are point number one, Christ-like behavior is to be chosen over worldly appearance. And point number two, Christ-like submission is to be chosen over worldly submission. So please follow along as I read 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 8 to 15. This is the mighty word of God which is the most important thing you will hear over the, enough, over the next roughly 45 minutes. Verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Please pray with me. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to see the words uh, for what they really mean, Lord God. We pray that your spirit would fill us with a heart of humility and to give us a heart of understanding, Lord God, that we may uh, not only receive 
your word for the moment, but let it be our heart, Lord God, as we go forth, as we tell people why we submit to God and we uh, our counterculture in our approach uh, to scripture, Lord God. We want to trust you with everything. And I pray you would touch me, use me, guide me, Lord. May your spirit fill me to overflowing that I would speak accurately and clearly. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Point number one. Christ-like behavior is to be chosen over worldly appearance. In verse 8 of our text, when the Apostle Paul writes, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, he's not giving us his private wish or his personal opinion. He is speaking as an apostle of the Lord, motivated and moved by the Spirit of God. And as an apostle of Christ, moved by the Spirit of God, he has the authority to outline the content and the context of our prayers, which he does from the beginning of this chapter until now. As we heard from VJ, uh, his sermon last week, the God who wants all men to be prayed for in verse 1 desires all men to be saved in verse 4. And that same God whose son offered himself as a ransom in verse 6 will have men lift their hands to him in every place in verse 8. Notice as we continue in verse 8, as the Apostle Paul is speaking of the lifting of the hands, the point is not that that is the only way we approach God. Right. This is the way that the priests customarily throughout the Old Te uh, Testament worshipped in the temple. As Psalm 134 verses 1 and 2 tells us. There it says, come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. And while that is an awesome uh, and biblical posture when you pray, God's true concern is with our purity over our posture. And it appears from the rest of the verse that some of the men had issues of anger, even to the point of quarreling, even while they were praying to the Lord in the midst of the congregation. They were putting on a front as if they were men of God who were lifting up holy hands to the Lord, interceding for the people of God, but their hearts weren't right in the sight of God. Externally, they presented themselves as being close to God, as if someone that you can go to and confide in, but internally, they were far, far removed from God. As we know, God looks on the heart. Putting on I just want to say this for a minute, putting on phony expressions of holiness while living a, a, another life can be a dangerous trap, right? Because if we do it long enough, it becomes a way of life where we just automatically, whether it's Thursday night Bible study and prayer, we put on this act, uh, this mask, this uniform of righteousness, and then we go back. As soon as we say amen, or we finish Bible study, we go back to the way we really are. And then on Sunday mornings, right, right around 9.45, we put that mask on again in that robe of righteousness. And then roughly 1.30, we're back 
to our worldly ways. And without even realizing it, you have put on a double identity. And it is a dangerous trap. And in, 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 at the end, when all of this is wrapped up and over, we go before God and he says, I never knew you. If we're honest, we would say, Lord, you're right, because I never knew you either. I didn't, I, I, I didn't know that you were that omniscient. I forgot that I could not escape your spirit. Where can I go from your spirit? I forgot Psalm 139. So even though it may start innocently enough, it can be a, a, a hellacious trap to those who don't even realize what you're doing. I just wanted to say that. We have learned from the scriptures that godliness is to be chosen over any way that you appear. Substance over style is key. The heavy emphasis on external appearances within this church even made its way to some of the women within this church. As I read verses 9 through 10, you'll see what I'm talking about. In verses 9 and 10, uh, the Apostle Paul writes, Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Some of the, some of the women at this church hailed from well-to-do families and were prioritizing their external beauty at the, the expense of their internal holiness. They wore elegantly braided hair as a sign of their wealth, but they crossed the line. They crossed the line as if this is what it is all about, how I look, how many heads I turn, how many people notice me. Dr. James B. Hurley, a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary, in his book, Man and Woman in Biblical Perspective, he addresses the culture and the, the fashion in Ephesus at that time. And he writes, the sculpture and literature of the period make it clear that women often wore their hair in enormously elaborate arrangements with braids and curls interwoven or piled high like towers and decorated with gems and golds and pearls. The courtesans, or what we today called high-priced sex workers, uh, they wore their hair in numerous small pendant braids with gold droplets or pearls or gems every inch or so, making a shimmering screen of their locks, end quote. The philosopher Philo, who was around to witness this personally, wrote of how it pleased a woman exceedingly whose hair was dressed in curious and elaborate plaits. He also wrote, she wears costly raiments, bracelets and necklaces and every other feminine ornament wrought of gold and jewels hung around her, end quote. This is what made its way into the church and it was causing problems. The Apostle Paul told his protege Timothy, you must say something. You must stop this because it is affecting the church. It is no longer about the glory of God. It is about their glory. God has called us to go into the world, making disciples, right? What that means is 
We bring people to Christ through our words, the Bible's words specifically, and we direct them to the glory of Christ. The Holy Spirit himself, who is God himself, equal in all attributes, he says, it's not about me, right? Jesus says he will bring you into remembrance of all things, and he will speak of me. The Holy Spirit is, 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 is just shining uh, the brightness of Christ. But you have some organizations that stop with the Holy Spirit and they want to worship the Holy Spirit and put all of their attention on the Holy Spirit. Yes, the Holy Spirit is God. Yes, you can worship him, but don't stop there. Look where the Holy Spirit is pointing you to. And it has to be Christ. It has to be his life, death, burial, resurrection, what he has done, what he has accomplished on the cross not trying to accomplish based on the way men feel. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, uses his letter to address the church both then and now. And the way they were presenting themselves, the women in the church taking all of the glory, was a hint that there was actually something going on within them, within them. And according to chapter 5, verse 11 of 1 Timothy, and uh, chapter 3, verse 6 of 2 Timothy, some of the women had already went wanton and, and, and strayed after the flesh. They had a passion to be married, but they went about it the wrong way. Some of them strayed after Satan in such a way that you would think that they don't even know Christ. So in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul addresses this to them. Why? Because they were becoming a distraction. In and of itself, seeking marriage, there's nothing wrong with that. But how do you go about it? Are you trying to receive all the glory to yourself and, and, and it doesn't matter that you are being a distraction and causing problems within your surroundings? Or do you want to honor God by doing this thing that he gives as a command very early in the text in the, in, the, in the text of Genesis, in the scriptures, right? Become one. Honor me and multiply. And continuing on in the Torah, why? Because I want you to tell them about me. When you wake up in the morning, when you go about in the way, when you lay your head down at night, tell them about me. It is all about the glory of God, not our glory. So when the Apostle Paul, through the eternal spirit of God, says that women should adorn themselves in respectable attire, he is not picking on women in general as if he had something against women, but he's dealing with specific problems that were affecting this church. The Greek word for adorn means to arrange, to put in order, or to make ready. A woman just like a man is to arrange herself appropriately for the worship service, which includes wearing non-revealing clothing that reflects a properly adorned chaste heart with modesty and self-control. And we know to walk with modesty takes humility. There must be a life submitted to Christ as opposed to being submitted or sold out to the flesh, to the world, to the wicked one. This has nothing to do with some type of prejudice, being prejudiced against women, misogyny. This has to do with who you're living for. If you're living for attention and self 
worth. That is a never-ending road that, that, that is seeking to uh, have some self-worth built on what people say. The Bible calls that vanity, a chasing after the wind. There is no joy in that, but we all want a heart that's willing to reject anything that's dishonorable to God. As Philippians chapter 3 verse 8 says, you want to count everything as loss because of the surpassing, surpassing knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord. Everything, everything is lost because of that, that I need to know him. I have to know him. That's what makes its way into your heart and changes you, right? And you are making a difference in your sphere, wherever God has brought you and the people that he brings to you. That's how you make a difference for Christ. When it comes to the outward appearance, whether it's men who stand in the midst of congregation lifting up, quote unquote, holy hands, but yet anger is in their heart, or women who come to the house of the Lord Sunday after Sunday, but it's more about their glory, God says, stop it. He says, stop it. It is about me, and I will not share my glory with no one. Years ago, my daughter and I attempted to make some chocolate chip cookies. Stay with me for a minute. Stay with me for a minute, right? The instructions, we got to a point where the instructions were kind of bizarre to me. Because it said, do not grease the cookie sheet. But in my mind, in my, uh, with my limited baking experience, I said, what if I don't grease the baking sheet, the cookies will stick and they will be ruined. And Chocolate chip cookies are my favorite, right? I, I, we, I, we couldn't ruin the cookies. So every other part of the instructions we followed, but I, I had to grease the cookie sheet, right? So when it was time to take the cookies out, they looked delicious. They looked good. And so I had my milk ready, right? And I was ready to dip and everything. And, 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 and right, I, I separated the, the cookies so that when they uh, spread, they wouldn't touch each other. Touch each other, and they would, you know, just come out so beautifully. But as we lifted each cookie one by one, the bakers in the house know what happened. The bottom was black. The bottom—they were ruined. They were—it was—it was a terrible. There was—it was a terrible sight. There was not one righteous. No, not one. no, not one. They looked good at first glance, but upon further inspection. They weren't what they appeared to be. Likewise, when we fix up the outer appearance, yet fail to keep a God-glorifying heart and mind, we are not what we appear to be. It's as if we have forgotten that we are to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart inside, with all thy mind inside, and with all our strength built from the inside, and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. It is as if we have forgotten that we all were a part of a bad batch of cookies. But the Lord chose us out of this bad batch and made us righteous. Keeping your mind on that gives you a heart of humility. Who am I to judge another servant? 
Who am I when God is able to make them stand? Who am I? I was a part of a bad batch, and I would still be a part of that bad batch if it wasn't for the, the God of the universe who gave me a new heart and mind and, and, and said, listen, worship me. And it could have been 29 years that I rejected that. But at the appropriate time, the Lord loved me, and I knew it. I knew it. And it caused me and all of you who love him to start to build on this relationship, to grow in your uh, 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 life with Christ. God, being rich in mercy, loved us with a great love, right? And saved us by grace alone, through faith alone. It is all of him. None of us. And so now we live for him. And it's the love of Christ that controls us, which as we continue in verse 9, we see if we have self-control, we bring everything together. Right? Self-control in all of these areas, how we pray with a clean heart, how we dress modest with humility, it takes self-control. I am not going to be controlled by the culture, uh, by friends, ungodly friends. I am going to allow the Spirit of God to control me through the Word of God. For those who see this as a hindrance to a woman's freedom to look beautiful, they are reading it all wrong. The Bible is not saying you can't fix your hair, put on jewelry, wear expensive clothes. The word of God is saying, check your motives. What is your purpose? What is your aim? This is what the, the, the word of God wants us to know, that God's aim is to keep people from distracting other people when it's time to worship him especially. Always keep in mind, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks upon the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. 1 Samuel 16 and verse 7. And we have to always keep that in mind. As we go before him in prayer, we're not praying for other people. Uh, we're not praying just to put on a show. We're not praying because somebody asked me yesterday, how's your prayer life? We're praying because we love him. We are having this communication and relationship with him because... He knows us and we know him. And as you speak to people that you love and know, you ask them, how are you doing? How was your day? Is there anything you need? Let me tell you my story. We keep up a communication with the people that we care about and love. Why? Because we're concerned and we want to be a blessing and we think that they can pray for us, they can help us, and we can help them, and we have relationship. And God says, who better to speak to than me? I gave you life. I created this relationship. I blessed you when, when you didn't even know it was from me. You went about your way. You didn't say thank you. And I didn't bring down my wrath. I kept you going. Who better to say thank you to? Right? Somebody blesses me with something. I thank them and I thank God for using them. God puts it in my heart to help somebody. I thank God because I am a sinner, selfish, self-centered, everything you want to put on it. But the only reason I bless someone is because of God. God just knocks me in the head. Hey, didn't they help you in that area? Oh, yeah. Didn't they help you five years ago when you didn't think that there was a way out? 
Why don't you give them a call? Why don't you drop them a card? Why don't you send them an email? Why? Because you're representing me, not yourself. That's the key, right? When we look at these verses, getting back to the text, when we look at these verses, we recognize them for what they really are. They are God's beauty tips for women. God's beauty tips for women, right? A woman who adorns herself with good works is always dressed beautifully in the eyes of God. The Apostle Peter essentially says the same thing, and I've said this numerous times before, but in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 4, he says to women, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty. It doesn't fade with age. It doesn't fade when you eat too much food. No, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Very precious. When you are in a church full of women who choose to be clothed in righteousness, humility, and profess godliness with good works, you, you are in the midst of a spiritual beauty shop. I like the way John Stott put it. He said, a woman needs to remember that if God has made her plain, grace can make her beautiful. And if God has made her beautiful, good deeds only adds to her beauty. Moving on to point number two, Christ-like submission is to be chosen over worldly submission. At the time this was written, in the Roman world, women were considered to be intellectually second class. It was no better coming out of a Jewish context or a Jewish background. According to the Jerusalem Talmud, the Jewish leaders believed it would be better for the words of the Torah to be burned than that they should be entrusted to a woman. And according to the Babylonian Talmud, the leaders believed men came to learn, the women came to hear. But the Bible says, let a woman learn. When the Holy Spirit leads Paul to write in verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, he's shattering the ancient stereotypes many of the men within that very church still held to. And in our day, when some of us, some of us, some of us read these words, it comes off as oppressive and misogynistic, as if Paul was prejudiced against women. On the contrary, at a time when women weren't allowed to learn in most pagan religious settings and some of the churches were following suit, Paul's message was stop keeping your women from the word of God. Stop holding them back and let them learn. And to learn quietly was the character and disposition of a Christ-like woman who hungered for the word. Instead of being treated like a second-class citizen where she was allowed to hear sometimes but wasn't allowed to learn in the church of the living God, she was to be a learner of the God who loved her and disciple of the Christ who died for her. The Bible says nearly the opposite of what many Jews, Greeks, and Romans were taught and believed. If you yourself were raised in these cultures, you would have been thinking to yourself, why would we do that, Paul? It's a waste of time. But the biblical answer is because a woman is being, a human being, a woman is a human being made in the image of God, even according to the Jews' own Torah. 
Genesis 1, verse 27. She has a mind, therefore God requires her to learn. It then becomes her responsibility to become a student of biblical doctrine. Some of you here may have even bought into the lie that Paul inherited a negative attitude about women because of his rabbinical training. But in several Pauline epistles, we see numerous instances of women engaged in vital ministry, many of them close personal friends of the apostle. They worked tirelessly in the ministry for the glory of God, putting God's will before their own. In Romans chapter 16, 11, uh, chapter 16 alone, we find him commending Phoebe, a servant of the church of Sancria. Then he mentions Priscilla, who along with her husband, Aquila, followed Paul from, from Corinth to Ephesus. They worked faithfully in the ministry. He calls them, them my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risk their lives, risk their necks for my life. Romans 16, 1 through 4. Every time he mentions them, Priscilla's name, and this is big, her name is brought up first, and he calls them my helpers in Christ, not my helper and his wife. Then he speaks of a Mary. He said she worked hard for them, according to Romans chapter 16 and verse 6. We don't know what kind of labor she did, but we know that in the city of Rome, while the Apostle Paul was in prison, whatever labor she did was invaluable, necessary. Then Paul salutes Tryphena and Tryphosa, who labored in the Lord, and the beloved Persis, who served much in the Lord. Three women who yielded themselves and submitted their lives to God for what? For the spread of the gospel. But to those who, sub, who, who cringe at the word submit and could care less what the Bible says on this subject, the glory of God has taken a backseat to the culture. In these last days, as the church is becoming more and more like the world by appealing to the flesh, False teachers are having a field day, and they're taking advantage of this and presenting Paul as a narrow-minded hater of women, even though it was the Apostle Paul who wrote to the church of Galatia, there is neither Jew, nor Greek, nor slave, nor free, nor male, nor female, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. We are all one in Christ Jesus. These words were as countercultural as you can get. This was shocking to the Jews in Galatia, who saw Greeks as pagans, devalued women, and regarded slaves as property. But the Apostle Paul, through his letters, boldly proclaimed the will of God by teaching faithfully all of you. All of you who have been born again have been born into the body of Christ and we come together as one and we worship him. We are equally God's children. But with that, he's not claiming there are no ethnic or social or male and female distinctions 
distinctions among Christians. He's only affirming that those distinctions have not created any spiritual inequality before God. The problem comes when someone believes and even teaches that spiritual equality has canceled out God's ordained roles of headship and submission in the church and in the home. That could never be. Why not? Because those roles have a greater pattern to follow. Jesus' submission to the Father and the church's submission to the Son. One of the greatest acts of Jesus' submission to the Father is displayed on the night before his crucifixion in the garden when he fell on his face and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup be removed from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He submitted to the will and authority of his Father God. Why? Why didn't he say, no, I don't have to submit. I am all powerful, just like you. I'm eternal, just like you. All of the attributes, I'm immutable or uh, unchangeable, just like you. Why didn't Jesus stand up for his rights? There are several several reasons I will give you two. Number one, because of his faithfulness. His name is faithful. It's a part of who he is. Just like my hand, it's a part of who he is, even more than my hand. My hand can be chopped off. It's his nature. He is faithful. As we went through uh, Revelation, Revelation, we came to chapter 19 in our Bible study. And we got to verse 11, where John the Apostle says, Then I saw heaven opened up. And behold, I saw a horse. And on the horse, there was one whose name was Faithful and True. Faithful and True. He had to follow through with the plan established before the foundation of the world because that's who he was. That's who he is. If you, here it is, if you are a Christian, you have been given the Holy Spirit. And a fruit of the Holy Spirit is faithful, faithfulness, which means you are called to be faithful to the scriptures, to God. You have been given a new nature, and it's not about how you feel. It's about being faithful to your Savior, to your Lord. Reason number two Jesus had to follow through with the plan is because he had you in mind. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22 says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, the Father. So according to John chapter 17 and, and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when all of this is wrapped up, when all of this is over, Jesus is going to say to the Father, here they are, Father. And I have not lost one of them. Side note, with that, some of us still panic 
when, we, when we're having a bad day, as if we can't keep it all together, and as if we can't stay on this narrow road. The narrow road is hard, as Jesus said, but it leads to eternal life. And here's the truth about it. If it was up to you, you would lose it. If it was all in your hands, you'd be lost. But before the Lord said, let there be light, he named you. You can write it down, Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, and Revelation chapter 17, verse 8, and Ephesians chapter 1. The whole chapter, the whole book is good, but verses 4 through 6. God ordained and called you by name. It wasn't just a sea of people and hopefully someone will come to me by name. He chose you and called you. And according to his appointed time, you came. You came. There was never any blockage except sin that kept you from God. And when God gave you a new heart and a new mind called regeneration, you can read about it in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. Titus 3, 4 through 6. God gave you a new heart and a new mind. Praise God. Some of us feel that it's all up to us because of our circumstances, that it's all on us. But in actuality, we are like that three-year-old in the mall. He may get ahead of you, but you always, keep your, you've always, you always have your eyes on him. He may be, you know, feel like he's free, but you're right there. God is much more faithful than us. He's much more faithful than us. As Henry read from Romans chapter 8, 35 to the end, it's all about God. It is all about God and keeping you. He has the power, just like you had no power to birth yourself before you came into this world. It's God who has done it. And it is so important to remember that Christ's submission, looking at him, why did he uh, uh, go through with the plan? It was never for himself, but for others. It was for the body of Christ. Likewise, a woman submitting to God concerning her role in the church and in the home, but in our context in the church, is it for her benefit first and foremost, but for the church as a whole? Because no matter what is going on in the world or the, or the, or the culture and what the devil is telling the world is right, women stand up. No matter what is going on outside, when we stay faithful to the word of God, we push back against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and we say, no, we're going to do it God's way. Why? Because, number one, he said so. Number two, we know that it works. We know that there has to be order in every organization, in every governmental system. There has to be order. And God says, this is what I ordained. You say you love me. Submit to me. Submit to me. The pillar, once again, is, uh, the, is the church, right? Right? When we talk about truth, where do you find truth? In this postmodern world, right? Is it your truth? Is it my truth? No, the church is the pillar and buttress of truth. It has to be. It has to be faithful to Scripture. Once we start bending Scripture to appease people and the culture, we open the floodgates to every issue, to every issue. There's nothing we can stand on. So in verse 12, 
When Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, the world, the flesh, and the devil raises up. It raises up. But we recognize this is not just a, it was not just a temporary command, but a universal command, right? And it wasn't just a, a temporary band-aid to address a cultural condition, but it goes forth into every age and every culture. And where Christianity is, it, it changes people in the midst of a culture. Here's what I mean. Yes, Paul was addressing a real situation in this church, right? Where some of the women in Ephesus desired the office or role of pastor slash uh, uh, bishop, elder, over the whole assembly. How do we know that? As we keep reading, remembering there were no chapter breaks until roughly the 11th century, we read it all as one. That's why this is a three-part uh, series, right? We get to chapter 3, and he says, If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he, he desires a noble task. And then he goes on to give the qualifications. An overseer, elder, pastor, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, so forth and so on. God willing, we'll cover this more next week uh, when I preach from chapter 3. But even in this very church, in, ch in, in, in chapter 2, verse 7, when he uses the word teacher, he uses the Greek word didaskane, right? Which refers to the exposition of scripture in the official teaching of sound doctrine or the fundamentals of the faith. This is what the Apostle Paul did in his official role as an apostle slash pastor. It is also what the elders of the church are designed to do, which is why eldership is the next subject that Paul addresses in chapter 3. So according to the text, God forbids women to preach over men in the house of God because they are acting as one who exercises the doctrinal and disciplinary authority that is tied to the preaching ministry. Incidentally, most men aren't qualified for this role either. As this verse does not imply that all men are to teach all women, nor do the scriptures say that all women are to submit to all men. That's being read into it by the culture. So Paul finishes verse 12 by saying, rather, she is to remain quiet. The question is, how are women to remain quiet? By not speaking at all when they're uh, in the church assembly? No. Let's stay with the context. You have to stay with the context. How? By not usurping the authority of the pastors or elders when it comes to the official teaching of sound doctrine over men within the congregation. The better these verses are understood, the clearer it becomes that they do not demean women in any way. And once again, this was not just a temporary or local command meant only for Ephesus because they had some rowdy, uneducated women. On the contrary, you should note that one of the women in the church at Ephesus was Priscilla, who I mentioned earlier. She was probably as theologically sound as anyone in the church. She came together with her husband Aquila to teach Apollos, who was competent in the scriptures himself. 
according to Acts chapter 18 and verse 26. So there are times and places when it, it is necessary for Christian men to learn from Christian women, but that does not mean you ignore the words of Scripture and start ordaining women to be pastors over the congregation. The Holy Spirit moved Paul to write this for all Christians everywhere, regardless of their educational background, teaching ability, or family connections. So one question that comes up, often comes up, is how do we know, really know, that this was not a temporary and local command? There are a few places within the scriptures, but since we're staying in context, we'll look at the next two verses. The next two verses. Verse 13, <clears throat> for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Notice, her role did not come after the fall. Paul is bringing this up for a reason. He didn't all of a sudden change the subject. God, Paul says, established her position as part of his original creation. God made woman after man to be his suitable helper. And we just heard Anthony uh, read that from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'll remind you by reading it again, but I'll start from, verses, from verse 3. There it says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And then we move down to verses 11 and 12. There it says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. We have to read these things with a balanced perspective. We, can't, we have to trust what the word of God says. We can't go to our ways. Whether we come from a mindset of being chauvinistic or whether we come from a mindset of being too light, too um, afraid to, to, to stand up and lead as a man, whether we just have no idea, but we're watching the culture, culture and listening to preachers, we have to stay with the word of God and trust that God knows what he is doing. By nature, here's what we get from the text. By nature, Eve was not called to assume the position of headship or ultimate responsibility. And then there's verse 14. There it says, Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. <clears throat> the fall here provides additional support as to why the woman is not to have authority over men in the local church. By leaving Adam's protection and usurping his headship in the garden, Eve was vulnerable and fell. 
confirming how important it was for her to stay under the protection and leadership of her husband. Adam then violated his role, his leadership role. And he followed Eve in her sin and plunged the human race into sin. They both violated God's planned roles for men and women. But ultimately, the responsibility for the fall still rests with Adam, since he chose to disobey God apart from being deceived. The home was compromised and their worship was hindered because they were cast out of the garden representing the presence of God. So, we see the command in 1 Timothy 2 was not just a local or temporary command because it's based on one, the order of creation, and two, the order of the fall. <clears throat> but out of that, God provided hope. Out of that, he worked all things for good, right? He brought a silver lining. <clears throat> In verse 15, the Apostle Paul writes, Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Did you see what the scriptures did right there? They moved the focus from Eve and addresses future women. How do we know? Because of the plural pronoun, they. If they continue. And concerning the word saved, in this verse, it's not returning, it's not uh, 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 speaking or referring to eternal salvation. Throughout the Bible, uh, to be saved or have salvation means to rescue, to be safe and unharmed, to heal or to deliver from. And it's sometimes used in the immediate sense. For instance, when the children of Israel just left Egypt and they turn around and they see Pharaoh's army bearing down on them, and they come to the Red Sea with nowhere to go, they were fearful. And they started saying to Moses, why did you bring us out here to die? We could have died in Egypt. And, and, and Moses says, fear not. Stand still and see the salvation the Lord will work for you today. And then there's Samson, who after he killed 1,000 Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey, he was thirsty, dying, literally dying of thirst out in the, in, the, in, the, in the wilderness, in the desert. And he cries out to God. And he says, Lord, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. And shall I, shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And then God provided a spring of water in the midst of the desert to save Samson. So Paul is not advocating that women are saved eternally through childbearing. This would be a clear contradiction of the biblical teaching of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. So what is Paul teaching? He's teaching through the scriptures that even though a woman bears the stigma of being the initial instrument who led the human race into sin and death. It is women through childbearing who continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control who are redeemed or saved from that stigma by giving life and raising generations of godly children. Mothers have a unique bond 
and intimacy with their children, and in most cases, spend far more time with them than do fathers, so they have a greater influence in their lives and a unique opportunity and a responsibility to raise godly children. I praise the Lord for my wife, Sharon, because not only did God give my children a pastor for a father, but more, much more importantly, he gave them a godly mother. And I pray you all would see that. I pray we all would see that. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your blessings upon the church, your grace upon the church, Lord, that you have raised up godly pastors, but more importantly, you raised up godly mothers. I thank you for godly mothers, Lord God. I thank you for godly women who care over children. I thank you that you have laid the plan out according to your will, according to your eternal mind. You know what you have called the church to be. And I thank you for that, Lord. I praise your holy name, Father. I pray that these things would stay with us, um, that we would know how to stand up against the world when they try to put on the church things that just are not true. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.